Hello, everyone. Welcome back to Personalization Outbreak Podcast. In today's episode, we'll be talking about the importance of upskilling. See, a lot of people think that upskilling is only important for those that are early in career, but that's just not true. Our guest today, Charlie Schilling, is the head of enterprise business at Emeritus, an edtech company firm that partners with top universities across the globe to teach the skills of the future by making high quality educational accessible and affordable. Now together, we'll explore the concept of upskilling and why it's become such an important factor in attracting and retaining great talent. Now, before we get started, please click the like button below, share it with your colleagues and subscribe to our YouTube channel and social media at Glenn Yopis. Let's get started. In today's rapidly changing world, it's more difficult than ever for organizations to keep up. That's why I'm excited to invite you to the Navigating Uncertainty Summit on October 14th at Clemson University. You'll learn from the most innovative thinkers in a day of inspiration and make cross-industry connections that will help you adapt to the modern world. Register now at 2022summit.ageofpersonalization.com. The 2022 season of Personalization Outbreak Podcast is brought to you by City of Hope, a world leader in the research and treatment of cancer, diabetes, and other life-threatening diseases. City of Hope has been ranked among the nation's best hospitals in cancer by U.S. News and World Report for over a decade. Learn more about City of Hope at cityofhope.org. You are listening to Personalization Outbreak, a podcast about the collapse of traditional corporate standards in today's more personalized world. I'm Glenn Yopis. I'm a leadership strategist, author, contributor to Forbes, and founder of the Leadership in the Age of Personalization movement. On this show, I'm interviewing executives across multiple sectors to find out how the balance between standardization and personalization can exist. Thanks for having me on, Glenn. How are you doing? You know, I'm doing great. You know, I know that in prepping for this interview, uh, we learned quite a bit about you. In fact, we learned about what your first job was. Now, look, I'm a big fan of the Good Humor brand ice cream, but you were actually a truck driver. That was your first job, right? That's right. We had an ice cream route. It was an old-fashioned Ford F-150 with a giant refrigerator on the back of it. Uh, and we had a lot of fun. It was uh, it was a, a wonderful summer job. Well, I have to imagine with all that fun came a lot of learnings. What did you learn about people? Uh, what did you learn about leadership at such a young age? Well, it's interesting, actually. So a, a, a key lesson, which is um, given the same tools or same tools given to different people can lead to different outcomes. And I'll tell you what I mean without sounding too boastful. So the old model for the ice cream truck driver is to drive around the neighborhood, you know, ring the bell and hope that the kids will come running down to the foot of the driveway or the you know, door of the apartment building um, and buy ice cream. And that's a great way to do it. Um, you know, clearly you can sell a lot of product by doing that. What my partner and I figured out though, is that uh, there was room for innovation 
which yielded better business results and more fun. And I'll tell you exactly what I mean. We quickly got to this idea that if we simply called the local summer camps, showed up to one at 1145, one at 1220, one at 1250, we only had to work like two hours a day and could sell out the whole truck and then, you know, go hang out in the afternoon or whatever. So um, it was a good lesson. And I think the, the one, that sticks with, one that sticks with me in a way, which is you can see similar problems, but if you take a different approach, sometimes you really do get to a better answer. Charlie, you just clearly articulated one of the, one of the five shifts of leading in the age of personalization. And it's this. Moving from results to methods. We've all been taught how to do things in very, in very much a predetermined, pre, you know, a prescribed way to get the result. And what you did at a young age is that you respected your own individuality to take on something through a new method. And so rather than run the, you know, do the traditional route, you knew exactly what you needed to do to turn that inventory and call it a day. Because And you did that through experimentation. Good job, Charlie. We're getting people to understand that if we serve where the individual is and do things in their own way, we can achieve much more than what's expected of us. And I think this takes us right into some of the challenges that we're having uh, with this great resignation. And University of Phoenix came out with uh, what they call a career optimism index. And they said this, that nearly one in three Americans would actually quit their job without having another one lined up. But 69% said that they would actually stick around if their current employer uh, made some changes. What's Emeritus doing to address this issue to help employers overcome these types of hurdles? And how is that changing higher education for adults? Well, it, a lot in there, it's a big topic. Um, for sure. And I think, um, look, it speaks to your area of research, the topic of this podcast. Um, it's all about how, um, you know, the three stakeholder groups that we serve, and I'll be specific about what those are, higher education institutions, companies who obviously employ people, and then individual learners um, can get better aligned on just that topic. And I think, you know, to the statistics that you mentioned, um, Individuals have so much power in this market. And I think one of the things that COVID has done um, as really large companies have adopted remote work practices is um, companies realize that employees or potential employees have more choice. And so there's a fight to quality on benefits, on flexibility, on the types of investments that companies are making in people. And learning has to be um, at the top of that list. And so what Emeritus does is makes that easy um, for both the employee and the employer. Easy for the employee because of delivery method. The vast majority of what we do is online, although not all of it. Um, but we've taken sort of the best of the classroom and put it online, but all in a cohort, right? You still are learning with your peers. Um, you've got practical exercises that can be applied on the job in the case of the work we do with employers, so on and so forth. And so um, that's one thing that uh, employers can do is make a proactive investment in helping their people grow, but grow in the way that they want to, not necessarily, to your point, um, the way that you know had traditionally been prescribed. 
So, Charlie, you said that individuals have a lot of power in what they need uh, rather than uh, what the employer thinks that they need. You know, we've seen this balance of power shift now from institution to individual. Why is that so important? And what does this mean to the future of higher education and the things that Emeritus is doing? Well, it's not linear anymore. Right. Um, you know, I remember my um, after I, I hung up my <laughs> good humor keys, my first job out of college was as an investment banker. Um, and it was a wonderful job. I learned a ton, you know, built lifelong friendships coming out of it. But the path is pretty linear. Right. You start as an associate, you learn a, or start, start as an analyst, rather learn certain skills, get promoted to associate, continue to do well um, you know, on up the ranks. Um, but that's true across many, many banks. Um, very straightforward career path. Um, and that's not true in many of the multidisciplinary jobs that people have, or particularly the jobs that young people want today, um, where the best performers have a mix of skills. Um, I'll use a specific example. The best marketers that I know today are data scientists at heart. Um, who are uh, you know, really savvy in the digital sphere, understand changing um, you know, methods to your earlier point, um, and remain avid learners. Because what we know is that the tools that people are using you know, this year um, are totally different than they were five years ago or will be five years from now. And so that adaptability um, is just so key. And so I think that employers who recognize that fact want to expose their employees to um, you know, many of these choose your own adventure paths end up being magnets for really great talent. Now, you said something that just caught my attention and made me think is, see, we don't update people as they evolve. In other words, we don't update our perceptions of people as people evolve because we don't take the time to keep up with their own individual life paths and journeys. What do you think employers need to do from an upskilling standpoint to change the way leaders are leading in today's age of personalization, where it's the individual that's defining the process towards a shared mission? Yeah, but the short answer is a lot. Right. And that there are concrete steps that really can be taken for employers um, to help employees on that path. Um, first is a question of access. Right. So giving people access to great learning content, world's best universities um, is certainly part of it. But the employer, but employers that provide only access um, don't get all the way there in the same way that you know, giving someone a library card doesn't necessarily mean that they're going to, you know, go master every topic that might be available, um, you know, through books at that library. And so the extra step I think the companies need to take is to help employees imagine paths that might be possible. How can, for example, um, you know, a digital marketer um, who might, you know, be responsible for a company's social media presence learn certain data science skills that might make her a better marketer of the future and help to paint those pictures of what the future of what future job roles might look like and how people can actually get from spot A to spot C um, is really helpful. Knowing that people may choose different paths along the way, but that employers can be quite imaginative 
uh, in doing just that, but then let the employees uh, you know, actually make those choices based on their own interests and passion. So talking about one's own interest and passion, we certainly know that early in career employees want more freedom to explore how their capabilities can make an impact and make a difference in how they influence at work. Do they want to break free from these standardized educational paths and pursue answers to big questions from multiple perspectives? What's Emeritus doing to address this critical need? Well, first is um, giving people access to education, which moves at the pace of business um, rather than the traditional pace of academia. Um, and so that means that as new skills um, come to the fore, um, employers have to figure out a way to give employees access to them. And we believe, of course, that Emeritus is part of that solution. Um, we can move and part of the role that we play with our university partners is based on what we hear from the market, either from consumer demand or corporate demand. We work with university partners directly to help build new courses in areas um, which are um, you know, important to the world, but of the moment. Great example um, is the work that we're doing with um, various partners around sustainability, um, which clearly an important topic for Earth, but also particularly important for certain industries like financial services, like consumer goods, um, so on and so forth. And so that um, I think that's a key element of it and a, a role that we have to play um, in helping both employers and employees navigate just what you described. Well, it's interesting because if you look at a topic like sustainability, um, this is a topic that is very much in alignment with what early in career employees expect from their employers. So as you think about the curriculum that you create for uh, employers, how much of that curriculum is based on employer, what the employer thinks they need for their employees or what the individual wants? Well, great question. And I think we uh, you know, sit at the intersection of both. So we have globally um, you know, a very large consumer business where in general, individuals pay um, you know, for their own coursework. Um, but then the other side of the business is the work that we do with companies directly where they either provide funding for their employees to take those courses or and provide you know private learning experiences for employees of just one company, um, and those can you know range from short courses, um, you know think three to six weeks, all the way up to um, you know our senior executive programs that can last anywhere between a year and twenty four months. Um, so really, can it can vary there, um, but that um, the that like actually listening to both sides of that market. Um, sends a very powerful signal to um, a given university partner or in mm -hmm. industry partner about content that we want to build. Um, and one of the things that we do is lots of research out in the market to test those concepts, bring back ideas, um, and then have a discussion with our university partners about the best way to teach it, best way to um, construct that course. And so I think our um, ear to the pavement role uh, is uh, is important. Charlie, now, up front, I know we didn't 
talk about a particular topic that I'm just about to ask you. So if you want to pass, you can pass, but you've inspired me to ask you this question. What is the incentive for the individual to actually complete the educational benefit that their employers are giving them? And the reason I ask this question is that the employees oftentimes are wondering, is the employer providing me this benefit for me or for them? Great question. And uh, my answer to it is that done right, these skills become transferable, mm. right? Like it is a reality that, um, you know, most employees in your organization will at one point leave, right? People have yeah. many, many more jobs now in a 10 year span than they did 20 or 30 years ago. So this is a certainty. And so the question for the employer is, um, how do you become a magnet for talent? So you're getting, you know, only top tier people who want to come join um, your company, but that while they're there, um, and it could be a relatively short time, you're doing as much to teach them um, new skills that will help them on that job, but that also will make them fans of the organization um, for life. And there are just storied companies that have invested in doing this over time. It's not actually a brand new concept. You know, for example, P&G, legendary for training people in the consumer sphere across marketing, merchandising, pricing, various other, other disciplines. Um, and it's a great badge of honor to have, quote unquote, grown up there. Um, uh, one of my former employers, so um, after business school, I worked for the Boston Consulting Group. Um, which invests massively in helping um, its employees learn new skills so they can function on the job. But they know most people are going to end up leaving. Um, but with hopefully, um, as I do, a very favorable impre impression of the firm and some real loyalty to it um, because of the investments that that employer made in you while you're there. Um, and so I think that, you know, it's, it, it's a cliche at this point. Um, you know, it's a statement you know, what happens if um, you invest in your employees and everyone leaves? And then the other person says, well, what happens if you don't invest in them and they stay? And that's very real. Um, and so I think what you're seeing is progressive companies make um, really large um, pools of capital available for employees such that they can fund education. And that there's some really important outcomes of that, including building a more diverse and equitable workforce and um, which is more important now than ever. Well, it's interesting as we're discussing this because I'm seeing more and more that the individual um, is getting to a point where they're becoming skeptical about what their employers want, what type of training or education that they want their employees to have. And my whole point in saying this is I just hope that the individuals realize that the type of services that you offer and how you partner with those employers, that they take advantage of. I mean, I see so much fear in the eyes of employees today in thinking that this education really doesn't matter when all they're really responsible for is to do what they're being told to do inside the box they're given. But as the pendulum, you know, the balance of power continues to shift to the individual, this is their opportunity to keep their employees or their employers on notice because they have options and they didn't have them when you and I started our career. But as you said, there's so many more options now in a, a, a lifetime of continuous learning 
is so important and it's so important to you. I know that you believe in the democratization of education. And, and this goes beyond just access, doesn't it, Charlie? It certainly does. Um, you know, access is, is one part of it. Um, and that can be, you know, actual access to a portfolio of content or learning paths that might be relevant for a particular employee. It also has to do with costs, right? How is it funded? Um, not much of a benefit if someone who um, you know makes a modest wage is being asked to fork over um, more than their discretionary income in order to pay for a course that then maybe gets paid back later by the employer. No wonder that that's a benefit that doesn't get used very often. Um, uh, but then the last part of it is, you know, we talked about access to content. We talked about cost. The other aspect that I don't think gets talked about enough is time. Hmm. And actually proactively putting time on the calendar for your employees such that they can pursue these learning paths. You know, it's all well and good to provide access to content to pay for it. But if what the employer is actually expecting is for that employee to do that learning path, you know, after the kids are in bed, after any other responsibilities are, are sort of satisfied at home, also not a sustainable model. And so I think what you see progressive employers doing is running internal academies where um, it's really part of your work week um, or part of what you do in any given quarter um, in order to learn these new skills. All the better, by the way, if it's just part of the job, right? A lot of what we see in software engineering now are um, you know, instruction that really takes place as pods or groups of people. Um, are working on a specific product, but they might be doing it, you know, in a new in a new software coding language or what have you. Well, I'll tell you, employees are already burned out, and at the end of the day, if they're going to make that dedication of time, it shouldn't be in the middle of the night for them. The employer should give it to them, because look, we're dealing with things such as diversity, equity, inclusion, well-being, uh, environmental, uh, social, and governance, and many other things that are downright unknowns for most of us. And so it's not just getting the right education, but giving people the freedom and the time to understand these things. Because the truth is, we live in a world now where that's on the individual, not just the employer. So the employer has even more reason to partner with someone like, like you, Charlie, because this is a bare necessity for survival in creating distinction for your own career. So look, I thank you so much for, for joining us today. Want to give you one final word. What else do you want to leave our audience with, Charlie? Uh, I'd say um, get started is my uh, my advice, and that's advice for both employers and employees. You know, the skills gap ever widening given the pace of technology change. These can seem like insurmountable problems, but if you pick them apart, it's very solvable, um, and you can help create a new future for um, your employees and your organization. You know what? And I'll tell you, this, this uh, you, you sparked a thought that it can't just be for the hundreds of thousands it needs, or the hundreds or the thousands of people. It needs to be for the hundreds of thousands, the millions. We have to start scaling knowledge and wisdom and, and in this process, upskilling people at a rapid pace. It just things just aren't sustainable. If we're not, and I think that that's the moral of the story here is that until we can scale education based upon where the individual is for the benefit of the employer, can we really find sustainability 
and significance in what we're doing. Charlie, thank you so much for your time. Really appreciate it. And as I end every show, when you lead in the age of personalization, you will see things that others don't. Do what others won't and keep pushing when prudence says quit. Thank you, Charlie. Thanks again, Glenn. Thanks for listening to Personalization Outbreak. Make sure to subscribe so you never miss a show. If you enjoyed the content, visit ageofpersonalization.com to check out our free streaming video series and learn how to get involved in the movement. I'm Glenn Yopis. I wish you a good day. And remember, without strategy, change is merely substitution, not evolution. Learn more about City of Hope at cityofhope.org.